Hello and welcome to the Church Times podcast. I'm Ed Thornton, Assistant Editor, joined today by Hattie Williams, Senior Reporter, and Tim Wyatt, Freelance Journalist and Church Times Contributor. Don't forget that if you don't subscribe to the Church Times, you can get 10 issues for £10. Go to churchtimes.co.uk slash subscribe to find out more. Today we'll be talking about the General Synod, which just finished meeting in Church House Westminster on Saturday. Tim and Hattie and their colleagues have emerged from the press gallery bunker after three days of, of hammering out reports, which you can see on our website and in this week's copy of the Church Times. What would you say, Hattie, was the debate that perhaps will be remembered? I think probably the Down syndrome debate, not least because it got, uh, as you say, quite a lot of media coverage um, over the weekend and also before the weekend as well. Tim, you were at a fringe meeting on Friday, uh, which um, Sally Phillips, the actor, was speaking so ahead of the debate on Saturday, the Mission and Public Affairs people at Church House organised this fringe meeting to kind of flag up some of the issues for Synod members, and I went along as well. So we heard from uh, Sally Phillips, as you say, who is an actor and famously made a documentary about her son Ollie, who has Down syndrome. And then there was also a woman called Heidi, who is what's called a self-advocate. So she's a 22-year-old who has Down syndrome and campaigns and is activist, speaks up for the community. And it was actually a really moving speech from Heidi. She spoke really warmly about what she called her fun-filled life. She lives independently. She has a job, hoping to get married soon. And she was really giving people an insight into what life is like for people with Down syndrome in the UK today, the ups and the downs. And then Sally Phillips spoke, again, quite passionately about the motion in particular, which was all about this new test that's coming into the NHS soon, which will give many more women the chance in a kind of non-invasive and safer way to find out if their child has Down syndrome. And the key ethical issue is, is this going to lead to a rise in uh, women deciding to abort their um, unborn children? And the worry could be that it might lead to the elimination of people with Down syndrome because evidence from other countries in Scandinavia and places seems to indicate that people with Down syndrome simply cease to exist if people find out before. I think that that was one of the key points of this particular motion, that the message was that it wasn't about abortion. The wording of the motion was um, about valuing people with Down syndrome. And although inevitably the word abortion came up a few times in some of the discussions, the Bishop of Carlisle, who was introducing the motion and who wrote the motion with the Mission and Public Affairs Council, said that it was actually not about the ethics of abortion, but as I say, about welcoming people with Downs. Um, And that was a key point in the discussion in that a lot of people um, spoke of their own experience of people with Down syndrome in their church or their children or other relatives. The Archbishop of York spoke of his adopted son. He was godparent to a boy with Down syndrome called Jack. Unfortunately his mother died in childbirth and his father took his own life so the Archbishop of York was talking about uh, raising Jack and the difficulties but also um, the great happiness and joy that he experienced as well. Sally Phillips told the Fringe event that the motion had been excellently crafted to be as uncontroversial, balanced and inclusive as possible. Were any amendments tabled during the debate? There were actually um, two or three amendments. A couple of them were from people trying to really strengthen the language and so make it more explicitly advising people that they should never abort a child because they find out they have Down syndrome. But actually Sally Phillips was quite honest in the fringe meeting. She said, to be honest, I would prefer if it was a stronger worded motion. She's got quite strong opinions about how wrong it is in her view to abort fetuses with Down syndrome. But she said it was really important that it was passed unamended because that strengthened the hand of the Church of England when it came to talking with the government, talking with professional bodies in the NHS about some of this more effective support and counselling and information. So a few amendments, but the Synod eventually decided to vote those down. 
So at the final vote, it was pretty clear what the outcome was. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was passed unanimously by all three houses. So 284 uh, people voted and there were no recorded abstentions. I spoke to Brendan McCarthy, who's the Church of England's medical ethics advisor ahead of the vote. And he said, you know, he was very hopeful that it would be passed, but he said it'd be really good if it was passed unanimously, because that sends an incredibly strong message that the Church of England is entirely behind this very compassionate, but quite kind of nuanced and not too political statement, which he says will really help the bishops and the mission and public affairs people when they go and lobby government in the NHS. Mm -hmm. There was also a really lovely moment at the end of the debate when Bishop Newcomb was closing his closing remarks and there were a few people who said it would have been really lovely to hear from someone who actually had Down syndrome uh, to actually speak in in the debate, although it was acknowledged that Heidi spoke during the fringe meeting. And to respond to that, Bishop Newcomb showed a video of lots of clips of people with Down syndrome, children and adults, saying thank you for considering the motion, uh, which, as I say, is to value people with Down syndrome. Moving on from one issue where there was unanimous agreement in Synod to to another matter where there was not quite such unanimous agreement, that was proposals to forge greater unity with the Methodist Church. The Synod was debating a major report, Mission and Ministry and Covenant. Readers will have seen um, the Bishop of Oxford, Stephen Croft, and Canon Andrew Davidson from Cambridge University on our comment pages recently taking very different views of this report. Tim, can you give us some of the background what Mission and Ministry was about briefly? Yeah, so Mission, Ministry and Covenant was a report that had been finalised quite recently, joint report between the ecumenical parts of the Church of England and the Methodist Church. It's kind of had quite a long genesis. It all began with the covenant between the two churches that was signed back in 2003, which kind of committed them both to working for unity. And this is the next stage in the journey, really. So it's not a merger plan or anything like that, but it would draw the two churches into a formal communion. And most uh, noticeably, it would mean that Anglican ministers would be able to serve in Methodist churches and more controversially, Methodist ministers would be able to serve, including presiding at the Eucharist in Anglican churches. And I mean, Anglo-Catholics, I mean, Andrew Davison and Ford in Faith and other groups have raised real concerns about Methodist ministers who are not Episcopally ordained presiding in Church of England churches. Were those concerns echoed at Synod during the debate? Yes, they were. There was a number of speakers in the debate who, who spoke to kind of flag up this as an issue. The kind of argument is that Episcopal ordination is central to Anglican theology and theology of priesthood in particular. And so while the if the plan goes through, what would happen is the president of the Methodist conference would become Episcopally ordained as a bishop and therefore all subsequent Methodist ordinations would be Episcopally ordained. But people who are currently Methodist ministers who have not been Episcopally ordained would be allowed in the kind of technical language as a bearable anomaly to minister in the Anglican Church, which does concern plenty of people, particularly on the, the Catholic wing of the Church. There's also a thing about the historic episcopate as well. Can you explain a little bit what that means? Yeah, so it gets quite theologically dense. So the term episcope, which is the Greek word and kind of means leadership or oversight, the Methodists have always maintained that they do exercise episcope in their church, but rather than being founded in individuals, bishops, like the Anglican Church has it, it's founded in the conference in a kind of corporate sense. And so people are, they would say, their ministers are episcopally ordained because they're ordained by the conference. So in the future, if this goes through, a Methodist minister will be ordained by the conference in a kind of connectional thing, which is the connectionalism is the kind of Methodist theology, but they would also be ordained personally by this president bishop. So it's, whereas the Anglican understanding of historic episcopate is all about the apostolic succession. So it's the idea that our bishops today have been ordained by bishops who were ordained by bishops, and you can chain that all the way back to the, the first apostles um, in the first century. 
Of course, some historians have pointed out that this is historical, historically inaccurate, and there have been, you know, breaks in the chain of apostolic succession and contentious and the modern idea of bishops didn't really arise until the second century. Dermot McCulloch in particular, a, a famous church historian, has been making that point. So there's a, it's a lively debate within the church, certainly. How did Synod vote? It was quite overwhelmingly in favour. It didn't need to be a two-thirds majority in each house, but when they counted up the numbers, they had easily those numbers. So it was there was a significant minority, but it was uh, comfortably Synod's gave its support to taking this next step and moving forwards towards, at some point in the future, I think, ideally, a, a new attempt at fresh unity. So yeah. the motion was only to welcome this report. Um, so it hasn't been formally kind of gone mm. through the canon, canon law process in either church. But now that the Synod has expressed its support for the idea, I believe that church officials will be working on about how to implement this in a kind of legal sense. On Saturday morning at the Synod, there was a presentation on safeguarding, an issue which has been much in the news of late. This very sensitive issue. How did it, how did it go? The presentation itself, a lot of the information in there was taken from the independent inquiry into child sex abuse. The Bishop of Bath and Wells, Peter Hancock, was giving a, a summary of what happened in the hearing uh, last week. So some detail as to the process of this inquiry, questions that are being asked, but also what the church is planning to do in response to those questions, and also how they are acting on a number of recommendations, both in the Gibb report and also in the Carlisle report as well. So in a way, it was kind of a passing on of information, but as you say, it was also an opportunity to hear the views of the Synod on the best ways to respond to abuse survivors um, and their concerns um, and some anger there as well and how to address that. And there were people who asked why it come through a presentation rather than a debate. Yeah there was some I think there was some frustration that um, so it's kind of synodology really but a presentation means just people speak from the front and then you can ask questions specifically about the content of that presentation but there's no motion to vote on and there's no op option for longer speeches but Peter Hancock said he was quite honest he said you know I, I want to have a debate on safeguarding and synod it's not in my hands it's in the hands of the business committee so it was decided to do this as a presentation but he was he was kind of didn't quite promise but said we really really hope that the next synod in July they'll be they'll they'll take the questions and the and the thoughts from this debate craft a motion and have a full proper debate with speeches and a motion to be voted on in, in the July synod. And how have survivors reacted to this presentation? Do they think the church is doing enough to change the culture to listen to survivors? So the voices of survivors were actually quite central to um, the debate itself, not least because they played a film um, which featured uh, the real voices as it were of survivors. Um, both telling their experience of abuse itself, but also uh, not necessarily clerical abuse, but the reaction of the church or um, the lack of support that they received after disclosing uh, various forms of abuse. Readers of this week's Church Signs will have seen an extract in our comment section from the booklet We Asked for Bread But You Gave Us Stones, which was published by Andrew Greystone. Each Synod member was, was provided with a copy and um, I saw Bishop Hancock on Friday during questions hold up a copy and, and urge people to read it. There were also survivors in the chamber as well who were obviously there to listen but also just a reminder that they were affected by what the Synod discusses and they still want to be a part of that and it's not just about the church saying that they're going to do things better but actually considering that people are still being affected and, and that they're still there listening. I asked Andrew Greystone after the debate what his kind of reaction was. He's become one of the kind of leading figures of the, 
abuse survivors uh, activism and movement and he said while he was glad the debate happened and it was conducted in quite a respectful fashion he, he still feels personally quite strongly that more wider reform needs to be made of the of the church of england safeguarding procedures you know so bishop hancock was kind of explaining how the spending on safeguarding has gone up by fivefold in just the last four years. Every diocese now has a safeguarding team, an advisor, and been regular training. He said tens of thousands of people have been trained every year. Andrew Greystone said he still believes, and other survivors do as well, that the Church of England should hand over safeguarding to some kind of independent body, or at least to oversee the church's efforts. That's one of their key calls, which thus far Bishop Hancock and others are still resisting. On Thursday afternoon at the Synod, the very eminent professor of theology, Oliver O'Donovan, um, updated the Synod on the review that he chaired of the Crown Nominations Commission. A report was prepared by eight theologians, led by Reverend Professor O'Donovan, and it called for more theological depth among those chosen to be bishops. Um, and there's quite a lot in this, wasn't there? I mean, how, Tim, what were some of the key headlines from his presentation? He was described it as uh, on the revolutionary side of evolutionary, <laughs> in his own words, which means he just said it was neither bland nor bloody. So it wasn't kind of he wasn't calling for sweeping reform or kind of overturning how the CNC yeah. works, but he did want to uh, make the Church of England selection processes more democratic, as it were, so less hierarchical, and so such as a few reforms which would help CNCs choose people who are not just kind of the next in line who were already suffragan bishops or diocesan bishops, but looking more widely, and in particular to choose people who have particular theological expertise because he said it was really important to get more people who were theological heavyweights onto the bishop's bench. He's also quite critical of how secretive the process can be. So he said obviously the kind of overall confidentiality of the process needs to be maintained but he said within that actually currently people on the CNC when they vote for each candidate they do so in a, in a secret ballot and he said actually it's much healthier and better if people just put their hand up essentially and vote publicly in front of everyone else and if required can defend and explain why they voted yes or no for each candidate of course while not explaining to anyone else outside of the CNC room how they voted mm. which would seem to be welcomed by uh, the Archbishop and the Synod and in particular. Also talked about how secretive it can be for candidates who sometimes he said smuggled in and out of Bishop Thorpe or Lambeth Palace for interviews and actually said it should be much more and um, perhaps have the candidates eating together worshipping together which I guess can be more like how parishes um, select new incumbents where sometimes mm. you know candidates are there together. Of course, and I think it's important to note the context this debate comes from. You know, it's obviously in the back of everyone's mind is the Sir Philip Moore review into the Sheffield Sea and the failed attempt to nominate Bishop of Burnley, Philip North. It's also, uh, the, we were told that the Darcyson Synod from Oxford has actually got a motion prepared complaining about some of the CNC processes and they notoriously went through a very long process in several CNCs before they could end up with a new bishop. Some of the speakers and the synod members who spoke in the debate did kind of launch complaints about various parts of the CNC process. A lot of the discussion was about how you could improve the diversity of the episcopate, how can we get more women, more BME people into the bishop's bench. But overall, the synod was very much in favour of what Professor Donovan was suggesting. We've just talked about highlights from the synod on today's podcast, but you can read an account of every debate in this week's edition of the paper. And there are reports on our website. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Church Times podcast. You can find more news, analysis, comment and book reviews on our website, churchtimes.co.uk. If you are not yet a subscriber to the Church Times, you can try your first 10 issues for just £10. You'll get the paper delivered to your door every Friday, plus full access to our website and digital archive. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash subscribe to find out more. The music for this podcast was provided by Sought After Sounds. 
Tune in next Friday for the next episode. Thank you.